Him. And I tell you what, it's good to get in that habit right now, amen, to praise the wonderful things that God has done for us. John uh, uh, Walford this morning said to me, he says, on January 8th, 17 years ago, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I says, it's hard to get over that, isn't it? He says, I'll never get over it either. And I hope you know the Lord this morning and you can rejoice in Him. Brother Rice, it is good to see you back there. Amen. Battling shingles and other things back there. So it's good to have you all here this morning. We have the privilege to have Dr. Hazen with us. Good to meet you. This is the first time we get to meet each other. Nice Amen. I was in Sundays. Good to see you too. <laughs> Dr. Hazen, 17 years tenure at there at Biola and teaching Christian apologetics. I'll tell you what, my friends. That is so important today to be able to defend our faith, to know why we believe what we do. And uh, he had a very strong part of uh, Dr. Mike McCoy's uh, influencing him in the apologetics and getting his doctor's degree from there. And so, Dr. Hazen, what a privilege. Thank you for taking your time to be with us today. My pleasure. Amen. Thank you so much. This is amazing. By the way, that was great worship. Wonderful band. I mean, look at this. This room is perfect. I mean, sometimes they go to these churches. They're so big. 
you just can't even see the people in, in the back. In fact, there was, there was one church in uh, Houston, Texas. You know, some of the churches in Texas are as big as like international airports. Just huge. Uh, but God bless this church. They were, they were not real proud of the size of their facility. Although I remember them giving me a tour of their children's wing. And they had to do it in an electric golf cart. In, inside the building, okay? Because they had this gigantic uh, hallway with all these facades. It looked like you walked into Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm. In fact, they had a fellow walking around with a big sash. Uh, and it said, Mayor of Kidtown. And he'd walk around greeting the children. And they had, they had an aquarium that was bigger than this room. With fish and sharks and various things. Crazy, but but God bless these people. They they knew where the action was, though. They 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 didn't hesitate to tell me a story about little Stephen, one of their Sunday school students. Little Stephen was maybe seven or eight years old. I forget exactly, uh, but I guess he would memorize Bible verses, and he was a he was an evangelistic terror, you know, out there uh, uh, making a nuisance of himself for Jesus in all the right ways, you know, and uh, spent a lot of time sharing the gospel with his neighbor friends. But they were telling me a story of one time one of his neighbor friends invited little Stephen to church. And it was a very liberal-leaning church. So Stephen's parents were a little concerned. But they said, hey, if anybody can handle this, little Stephen can handle it. So Stephen goes off to this church and sits down in liberal church and liberal Sunday school class. And uh, the liberal Sunday school teacher decides to give a lesson on uh, Jonah and the big fish. And he spent most of his time, as you would expect, deconstructing the story, telling the children this kind of thing never really happens, but perhaps there are some important spiritual lessons we can learn from this this ancient myth of the Near East. Well, this was disturbing. Little Stephen at seven or eight years old, so these folks were telling me. And and Stephen raises his hand. He says, "I, I, I think it's true. And the liberal Sunday school teacher said, oh, yeah? Uh, how do you know? And, and Stephen, he wasn't exactly well-versed in, you know, ancient texts and languages and such. And he goes, well, I don't know, but but when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the, and the liberal teacher said, oh, yeah, because he's being snarky at this point. Oh, yeah? Well, what if Jonah's in hell? And little Stephen goes, well, then you ask him. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so... So, yeah, God bless the Texans. Uh, and God bless you for for holding forth in a very dark area. This uh, Eugene is not exactly the spiritual center of the universe, you know, well, at least not in terms of traditional Christianity. There might be all kinds of spirits here, but, but not, the spirit of God uh, doesn't get to show up very often. I am glad you are a light in a very dark place. And it's very nice to be here with friendly faces. Uh, I go to secular university campuses a lot, and I've been chased off some of the best of them, you know. Uh, I'm not kidding. On, on, on various occasions, I have to be escorted off by the campus police. And it's not because I'm doing anything crazy except trying to uh, say that I actually think the, there's excellent reason to believe that Christianity is true and trying to make that case. That is incredibly offensive these days. don't know why. Well, I do know why. I've read the Bible. It's just it's offensive to people. Oh, so I was up in Olympia, Washington. And by the way, some people, as you probably heard, think Washington State might be the most unchurched state in the country, although I guess Oregon now is a close second, if not now the leader. Uh, But when I was first studying it, Washington State was the most unchurched state in the country. And if you go to uh, Olympia, Washington, that's the most unchurched city in the state of Washington. Well, then if you go to a secular university campus in Olympia, Washington, presumably you have hit spiritual rock bottom in America. You know. So imagine my surprise in my Biola University office. If you're, by the way, if you're not familiar with Biola, it's a 100-year-old uh, uh, Christian institution that actually Biola stands for Bible Institute of Los Angeles, that we actually embrace the Bible as the inerrant word of God. And we've been in Southern California for 100 years, you know? That's, that's something. The hand of God has been on this place. So I get this call at Biola in my office, and it's, it's some 
some guys have started a Christian club on this campus in Olympia, Washington, and they want me to come up and give a little talk. So I'm chatting with these guys. Turns out it's not much of a club. It's two guys. And they're probably the only Christians on the campus. And uh, they're business majors. And they discover that if they start uh, a club, they get access to Associated Students' money. So they're, they're walking around with fistfuls of cash Wondering what to do with it, you know? So that, hey, I've read books. I've read books by these, you know, writers and teachers down at Biola University. Maybe we should bring some of them up. So that was the first one. That was the guinea pig. And they thought, yeah, well, we'll bring him up and maybe we can get people to attend to talk, you know. Uh, and they warned me not many people would come. So I was coming expecting, you know, maybe these two guys and a couple of their friends or something. So they, they fly me up to SeaTac uh, Airport near... You know, Seattle. They pick me up at the airport and they're rushing me down to Olympia because uh, this is a lunchtime event and we're a little bit behind schedule, so they want to get me there. So they're they're flying down Interstate Five. They pull off where Olympia is. They pop into a parking lot and rush me into a building. So I go into a building and uh, uh, walking quickly with these guys. But something catches my eye over here on a wall. It's it's a it's a poster about yay big, and it's my face. Okay, now that's 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 kind of disturbing in itself, but especially disturbing was the fact that there were flames under my face, and the title of the event was "Come Barbecue the Christian." Now, these well-meaning guys, you know, dear brothers in the Lord, they, they were business majors in the school and and marketing with a marketing emphasis, and they thought if we you know, have a barbecue the Christian session, I'll bet we'll get a bigger turnout. Well, well, they were right. And in fact, it had a whole barbecue theme. Uh, right when I saw the poster, a guy walks by with a wheelbarrow filled with barbecued chicken wings from the best barbecue place in town. The smell was wafting through the building and, and, and people were just kind of wandering in zombie-like into this big lecture hall. I walk in around the corner. There's this lecture hall, standing room only. There's undergraduates and graduate students and people in white lab coats and janitors and people's moms. You know, I don't know how they got the word out, but, man, they did a good job of the marketing. They hadn't thought through the event all that much because this was catching me all by surprise, you know. And they said, yeah, what we figured you could do is you could stand up in front of this crowd and just answer their questions. <laughs> so come barbecue the Christian. They ask the hard questions and they try to barbecue me, you see. And then they get rewarded. You see, once it's all done, they release them to, to eat chicken wings. So they get to dismantle a Christian, which is great fun for them, I'm sure, and then celebrate by eating wings, you know. So that's the event. And I'm just cluing into this. So I'm, the fog is lifting. Okay, I think I'm getting oriented here. All right, let's try this out. So they introduced me, and I gave a quick five-minute opening talk and uh, just to get things uh, oriented. And then I said, all right, let's hear your questions. So I've been doing this a long time. And the the questions have changed over time. They've gotten stupider. (laughs) I'm not kidding. You would think that atheists and agnostics would have honed their game a little bit. (laughs) But it's not the case. In fact, it was as if everybody in the room had gleaned all of their theological knowledge from reading the Da Vinci Code. I'm not kidding. I could almost cha- I cite chapter and page number from the from the Da Vinci Code on some of these questions. And I'm not kidding. We had the whole the whole atheist club was in attendance. They were sitting in the front row with T-shirts on, so you couldn't miss them. You know. And honestly, I thought they were. I had to help them ask better questions. I said, sir, you know that's a that's a decent question, but it could be a lot better. Here's how I would formulate it, and I'd repackage the question, hand it back to him, and then he'd ask me that question. And I'd go, oh, that's a hard one, you know. <laughs> well, it was my question, so 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 we had some funny interaction like that. But but even more strange was about halfway through the session, uh, the questions just dried up. They're just sitting there looking at me. Well, you know what? I heard the rules of the game. They have to ask me questions in order to earn the wings. So I'm just standing there. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, but, but that not that amazing? This is, 
These are college students at that age where you want to explore all the big questions of life, you know. Is there a God? What's right and wrong? What's good? What's true? What's beautiful? Um, all these all these wonderful questions to explore. And you got some Christian guy up there who's willing to take a crack at some of these questions and you, you run out of things to say, you know. It kind of blows my mind. Uh, anyway, I could... They, they were staring back at me, and I was staring back at them. And I was kind of scanning the audience, you know, like this, uh, looking for any kind of motion. And finally, I saw a guy out in the middle, and he's, he's nudging his neighbor. And you can see him mouthing the words, ask the question. The guy goes, okay, okay. And so he sheepishly raises his hand. Of course, I'm scanning for motion. I notice it immediately. You know, you, sir. And he goes, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, so... um. Oh, do do you believe in baptism? Strange question. I said, sir, not only do I believe in baptism, I've seen it done. <laughs> there was this there was this pause for a moment, this this beat, and 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 suddenly the whole place just exploded in laughter, you know. And it was so helpful because you can tell, tell up to this point, it was just a big game of gotcha, you know. Uh, how, can we, how can we tie the Christian guy into, you know, a pretzel or whatever? And, and when they started to laugh, the shields went down, and we were able to have some better communication. So for the last 10 or 15 minutes, I don't remember what it was, but it was too short, we had some great interaction. They were asking questions like, so really, you're like an academic person and a Christian? How do those things go together? You know, did you grow up in a Christian family? Were you, were you dropped on your head as a child? You know, uh, all the questions that were really on their mind, they were asking, and I was doing my best to answer them. And then finally, the, the time was up, and, and they released them to the wings, you know. So they were, they were, oh, they, they really showed their true colors, and they were stomping on each other, heading for the wings, you know, pushing people out of the way. And Oh, clearly there were a lot of architecture majors or structural engineering majors in the group. The reason I know this is because they gave them little plates. But they were able to build towers of wings. <laughs> you know, with with flying buttresses and, and drawbridges and the whole thing. It was just amazing what they were building. They wanted to pile those wings on on high. I could tell you just from the smell, these things had to be good. Um let me close out this ridiculous story for you. Uh, so uh, they're getting their wings, and I remember somebody stood up in the front row, and we're, they're, they're asking me a personal question. We're just interacting here. And I learned to use my peripheral vision on these secular campuses. I saw somebody coming from the wing table around the bend. It's a woman, and she's got, she's got a big plate of wings, and she's eating one. She's coming at me, you know. And, and I'm talking to somebody over here. She leans over me and shouts. She goes, she goes, hey, hey, I look up, and there she is, like right there, you know. Like, oh, yes, yes, ma'am. How, how can I help you? And, and she had a little schmutz on her face from eating the wings, you know. So I said, uh, how can I help you, ma'am? And she goes, well, here's my thing. You see, you see, there aren't enough women in the Bible. What kind of question is that, you know? There, there aren't enough women in the Bible. Like, I had a lot to do with that, you know. <laughs> So I'm thinking, this is so crazy that she's a plant from the drama department, you know, come come to annoy me, you know. She's just playing some role, you know. I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. She's like, yeah? I go, yeah. Like, uh, like the three wise men should have been the three wise women. She's like, yeah. I go, that makes so much more sense because if it were three wise women, uh, they would have arrived on time. Uh, because, you know, women ask for directions. She's like, yeah. I go, and for goodness sakes, they, they would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stable. Uh, and they would have brought practical gifts, like a, like a, a baby blanket and a casserole, you know. And the lady goes, yeah, yeah, you know what? She goes, you get it, you get it. And she walks away. Okay. Oh, oh my goodness. I, I think we made a mark on the campus. 
they would, I guarantee they, they got big plates of wings and then they would not leave. They really did have some questions. But the environment didn't allow them really to be honest with their questions. So when we broke through uh, the craziness, we finally had some good interaction. Uh, and and the, the Bible club on the campus started to take off. People started to attend. They thought, this, this is a place where you can really ask some hard questions. But what I've discovered is uh, it's crazy out there, especially on these secular campuses. And uh, I've, I've discovered something. My colleagues and I, we travel almost every weekend in churches doing uh, apologetics conferences, helping, helping Christians to be able to uh, present their faith and defend their faith. And what we've discovered in evangelical churches around the country is there's a palpable fear among Christian believers. They really are afraid. And the fear is not justified because what they're afraid of, they're afraid to live big for Jesus and they're afraid to share their faith because they're afraid people are going to ask them some hard questions that they never really learn the answers to. And I got to tell you, it's not that hard. It's really not that hard to get... Uh, geared up a little bit to a- answer the most common questions that people have about uh, Jesus and the Bible and, and creation and so on. It's not that hard to do. So we try to get out there and, and encourage churches. And there's a, bit, there's a movement building where people want to learn this. And what happens when you begin to learn something about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, for instance, suddenly you become a little bit anxious to talk to people about that. Suddenly, your confidence level rises dramatically, and it's very helpful. Uh, I have a real heart for this because I I did my doctoral work. I I studied theology at one school, but then I decided to go and do a doctorate at uh, the University of California in Santa Barbara in religious studies. And that was a very challenging situation for a Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christian like me, you know, bouncing into a hostile environment like that, you know. But I got to tell you, it was, it was a marvelous opportunity to study from great Buddhist teachers and Muslim teachers and, and even a Mormon teacher was there. We got, we got a chance, I got a chance to study all these great world religious traditions from stem to stern, from people who are top scholars in these fields and, and people who really believe these things. And that was marvelous. I got a chance to compare my traditional Christian beliefs with the beliefs of these other faiths. Now, uh, as you can imagine, I'm still a Christian today. In fact, I am stronger than ever having gone through an experience like that. Because it turns out those other religions don't hold a candle to the Christian faith. It's in case you're wondering, because you've never had a chance to study, say, Buddhism, huh, take it from me. There's nothing there. In fact, <laughs> I won't get into the philosophical aspects, but a good Buddhist would say there's nothing uh, there on purpose. You know, there's just nothing. At the end of the day, what really exists in Buddhism? Nothing. Except nothing is a kind of something, so it's beyond nothing. Anyway, no more of that. But there's one thing that really shot out for me as something special about Christianity uh, when doing this comparative study. You know, it's a rare opportunity, and I discovered something about Christianity that really uh, helped me a great deal, and it's kind of set a path for me during my life, and it's this. Christianity is testable. It's testable. And what I mean by testable is you can offer evidence for it, you can offer evidence against it, and the evidence actually means something. In other words, you can make a decision about whether to become a follower of Jesus Christ or not based on that kind of investigation. Now, this, this actually causes some people, even good Christian churches, to scratch their head. Really? That, that's not the way I understood it. But let me, let me present it this way. In fact, I'll use the words of the Apostle Paul. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you what I consider to be one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. You don't find something like this in the, in the Bhagavad Gita or the Buddhist Tripitaka or the Quran or the Book of Mormon. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 12. 
In fact, I'm just going to read this and see if you can figure out why I would call this one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. Paul says this, Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And so is your faith. Really? And he continues. Yes, and we are found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen either. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Really? What was he thinking here, for goodness sakes? You know, that's no way to start a religion. I say that tongue in cheek. This, some people would think this is crazy because what the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15 is this. He hung Christianity by a thread, the thread of the resurrection, and invited people to come along and try to cut that thing so that it would crash down. Now, that leaves some people kind of unnerved. Really? We, we hang by a thread? Uh, now, it turns out that thread is made out of some super titanium alloy that breaks any pair of scissors that gets near it. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, in my view, is the best attested fact of the ancient world. And I got to tell you, that gives me tremendous courage. I wish I had time to give a lecture on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because it's it's remarkably good. It's so good, it really kind of stuns some liberal scholars when they finally get a close look at the evidence for the resurrection. God was very generous in leaving a tremendous trail of evidence down through history testifying to what happened in first century Jerusalem. Jesus was... Alive at point A, dead at point B, and alive again at point C. That is the decided conclusion of the historical record. So we've got this thread, but it's quite a strong thread. It's not going anywhere. So the Apostle Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus himself, and he trusted that God would protect the evidence as it came down through the centuries to us, and that's exactly what he did. This is one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. You don't find things like this in Buddhism or Islam or Mormonism. This is unique to Christianity. We are, we are people of knowledge. We investigate and closely analyze and determine the truth through investigation. And we've got the word of God accompanying us all along. And testability is not just something you find in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a, it's a very strong biblical theme. Uh, gosh, you find this all through the Old Testament. Uh, like, like with Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, right? This is a great story. You probably know this story very well. Uh, where Elijah, is, he squares off with the prophets of Baal. Right? He, he challenges the prophets of Baal to a little contest. Hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. You claim Baal's, Baal's real. I claim Yahweh's real. Let's put up a couple of altars on top of Mount Carmel and see whose God responds. So this was the great contest. And it says all of Israel gathered. Really probably means the leaders of Israel, but, but there were representatives there. I mean, it was a big crowd watching this. And there were like 400 prophets of Baal uh, lined up against Elijah standing alone. And so they build a nice altar, and the, the prophets of Baal are going to go first. They build their altar over here. It's a lovely altar. They get a big slab of meat. They put it on top. And what they're going to do is they're going to call upon Baal. They're going to chant and dance and do whatever it is prophets of Baal do to get Baal to send down flames from heaven and take that offering up and show everybody that Baal is real. So they go. I don't know how they dance or chant or whatever. But it's not going very well for them. And so the text says that they actually got out swords and spears and start cutting themselves. You know, they're, they're bleeding out, hoping that that's going to get Baal's attention. You know, they're staggering around after a few hours of doing this. And it's still not going very well. Elijah's over there taunting them. You know, hey, shout louder. You know, your God's probably asleep, you know. 
And so they're really working hard at it. Finally, their time is up, and they're just collapsing into a big heap. There's a, there's a pile of prophets over here, you know. And there's just flies <laughs> just uh, landing on their meat. Nothing's happening. Elijah's turn. Sets up an altar, nice slab of meat on top. Digs a trench around it and has people bring in buckets of water to dump over the offering. Runs down, fills up the trench. I asked some fourth graders one time, why do you think Elijah had people pour water over the offering? And one really smart kid said, I know, I know. I said, yes. He goes, uh, uh, to make gravy. <laughs> yes. The water is flowing down. Uh, and, and then Elijah, he says a quick prayer, kind of gives God a wink, and you know, down comes fire from heaven, takes up the offering, laps up some of the water, probably takes up a few prophets of Baal too, just for good measure. But it is a definitive demonstration that Yahweh's God and Baal is not. You know, this, I mean, now I'm, you might want to try this here in Eugene. Go to some, you know, temple or something and, and, and set something up. But uh, make sure God is guiding you on this. Uh, but can you imagine being one of the people in attendance? Do you think that they walked away saying something like this? Well, you know, that was quite an afternoon. But, uh, you know, religion's a mysterious thing. You can't really see God. You can't really know anything. No, nope. yeah, it's all just such a mystery. No, for goodness sakes. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, Yahweh's God, Baal is not, fear Yahweh. And they would have run for the hills and, and try to find a way to become right with him. You know, That would have been the basic effect of this. You find this kind of demonstration throughout the Old Testament. And, and it leaps right into the New Testament. I mean, the, the apostles are completely overt on this. Second Peter 1.16, listen to what Peter says. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when he told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw this. He doesn't want anybody to get the idea that this was some uh, mystical experience or ecstatic dream or something that happened only to him. No, we're telling you, we saw it. They were obsessed with that basic idea of demonstrating the truth of their message through empirical witness. First uh, John 1, 1, very powerful along these lines. John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim Amen. concerning the word of life. Amen. Now, Jesus was big on this, too. Uh, in fact, when the, when the uh, Jewish leaders of his day came to him and said, hey, you, show us a sign. And Jesus was basically, I'm not going to show a bunch of rascals like you a sign, except for one. Tear down this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. That was going to be the great demonstration, the marker that shows that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the very Son of God in their midst, with the power to save. But they didn't pay enough, they didn't pay much attention to that. But one other point of demonstration. Uh, it's not just the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus actually laid the groundwork leading up to that ultimate sign, his death and resurrection. Uh, in fact, my favorite example of Jesus demonstrating the truth of his message comes from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I've, I've got this thing memorized. I don't actually have to open it up. Uh, uh, in fact, I could, I could probably perform it through interpretive dance, you know, if need be. So... I didn't bring my leotard, so that's going to be a problem. So here's here's what's going on in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is coming to town. Uh, Jesus is coming to this little sleepy fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. And when Jesus is coming to town, this is an A ticket, folks. Uh, In a town like this, they don't have movie theaters and uh, big uh, concert halls and video games, and all kinds of entertainment options. So when a guy who is purportedly a spellbinding itinerant preacher is coming to town, this is hot stuff. And so you get there early. And that's exactly what the text says happened. Jesus was going to be presenting a message in this, uh, in this home, and it was jam-packed, filled to overflowing. 
And so the, the text describes the situation. But then it shifts focus for a second and focuses on four guys. I love these guys. There's probably guys like this all over this room. These four guys could have gotten there early and gotten a good seat. But on their way there, they're thinking, hey, wait a second. Let's go get our friend, the paralytic. You know, a guy who couldn't use his legs, maybe all his life. So they run down. They have compassion on this guy. They run down to get him. They put him on a mat, and they, and they trot him down to where Jesus is. And now, of course, they're late. They can't get near the place. Uh, people are stacked, you know, maybe five or ten deep outside the home, trying to crane their necks to hear what's going on inside. But these guys, this is why I love them, they're undaunted. They somehow figure out how to get this paralytic up on the roof. You know, Now, I don't know if they had... The text doesn't describe how they did this, if they had two catchers and two throwers <laughs> or, or a rope and pulley system or what. You know, we don't, we don't know. But they get, the, uh, they get him up there and they start to dig through, right? They're, they're pulling up tiles, you know, and, and starting to dig through. Could you imagine the scene inside? You know, uh, Jesus is trying to give a message on the uh, kingdom of God, I'm sure. And, 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 and there's, there, the, the, the roof is rumbling a little bit. And there's dirt falling and a leaf, you know. And it looks like, this, looks like the ceiling's caving in, you know. And suddenly, a little beam of light pokes through. Of course, the beam of light is hitting the dust in the air, so it looks all spooky and ethereal, you know. And, and the hole gets bigger and more light pours through and more dust. It's almost choking the people down below. Uh, finally, a head pops through up on top. Guy looks around, head pops back up. And the hole gets even bigger. By this time, the dirt's starting to choke the people down there. I don't know if Jesus stopped teaching or not, but it would have been a worthwhile thing to stop and look around. Uh, But the hole gets bigger. And as if this isn't all strange enough, the ceiling then begins to give birth. As they have this poor paralytic fellow wrapped up in his mat, probably with ropes tied to it, stuffing him through the hole. Poof! They get him through. He's probably got a hold of the rope, and he's swinging around, and he kind of lands on the ground with a thud. Dust pops up. Uh, people are wondering what's going on because light is now pouring in, kind of blinding people, and the dust is choking them. But the dust finally begins to settle, and the people see this paralytic sitting in front of Jesus and four heads looking through this hole at the top, you know, wondering what's going to happen next. Suddenly, all eyes shift to Jesus because everybody's going, What's he going to do? What's this, what's this, what's this out-of-town rabbi going to do in this very strange situation? And what does Jesus do? He says something very strange. He goes, son, your sins are forgiven. That's probably how they looked in the audience, right? They're like, and, they're, and they, they were whispering to each other, can, can he do that? And they're thinking, I don't know, but I hear he can make lunch. That's, uh, that's the rumor. So I'm hanging in here. Uh, son, your sins are forgiven. And there were a couple of Jewish teachers of the law in the back of the room going, hey, wait a minute, who can forgive sins but God alone? Of course, they, uh, they didn't realize they were onto something there. But now why, here's a question, why didn't the people in that room leap to their feet? Because this is a pretty big event if this fellow's sins have just been forgiven. Why didn't they leap to their feet and say, you know, hallelujah, what a happy day this man's, this man's sins are gone. Happy day. Why didn't they do that? Because they didn't know. They didn't know if that man's sins were forgiven. I mean, sure, this guy's a pretty good preacher and all, but, you know, that's kind of a radical statement. Your son, your sins are forgiven. And by the way, if your sins are forgiven, it's, if that's really happening, that is an invisible spiritual activity, isn't it? There's, you don't like uh, put some sort of temperature tape on your forehead or stick some litmus paper in your ear and determine uh, whether your sins have just been forgiven. You, know? you can't go to the doctor and have him plunge something into your you know, side and pull it out and determine whether you're clean before God. It's not that kind of thing. So you really have to trust who's saying it, right? So Jesus is saying, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking, well, good for him. I don't know if it happened or not. I mean, think about this. Uh, say the doors burst open in the back of the room here, and in walks a fellow with, with, with long white robes and a beard, you know, and a, and a, and a hat and a staff. And, 
He's got sandals on and some disciples following him. He, he looks like he looks like Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings series, you know. And and he's walking down the aisle. He, and he's got an important message for you all. Some of you aren't disturbed at this in the least. You're thinking, this is Eugene. It could easily happen here. I know what you're thinking. He walks in. He pushes me aside. And he says, hello. Because that's what religious guys say, you know. Or, or maybe behold. <laughs> or, or maybe lo and behold, you know. Really hits it out of the park. And he says, my children, your sins. They are forgiven. You know. There's lots of drama. And you're sitting there going, uh, Okay, it's kind of entertaining, but a little weird, you know. But I don't know if Gandalf up here can forgive our sins or not. So you're a little bit wary about getting too excited about the whole thing. That's exactly the position these people were in in this room with Jesus. Son, your sins are forgiven. They didn't know if he could do that. Well, Jesus could see it on their faces. that They're a little bit skeptical about this or just simply uh, unknowing. And so he says this. And this is the crescendo of the entire passage or pericope or whatever theological term you want to call it. This is, this is the crescendo of this particular story. Um, Jesus says this, all right, so that you will, and here comes the operative word, so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Pick up your mat and walk. And maybe for the first time, this fellow gets up on his feet, picks up his mat, and starts to walk for the door. And people are making way for him because they've never seen anything like this. And the text in, in Greek in Mark uses some of the strongest words in that language. They were astonished. Jesus wants us to know. And he's given us tremendous evidence that all of this is true. He did it before the eyes of the people in his own day. And he's, he's given us every line of evidence that we could possibly enjoy today. And in some ways, we have so much going for us in terms of making our case for Christ that we're kind of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz who's been wearing the ruby slippers all along but just didn't know it. We've got to click them together three times and see the magic happen. And it really is a powerful thing when people uh, begin to present the gospel and then are willing to, to defend it, to present evidence for it. But in a manner like this, that's it, highlighted in 1 Peter 3.15, with, with humility and with respect, always interested in winning the soul of the person with whom you're communicating, not winning an argument. That's not the way Jesus did it. It's not the way his apostles did it. But they did make their case. Sometimes they displayed God's power right in front of people's eyes. And sometimes they, they just made the case that Jesus was alive at point A, dead at point B, and alive again at point C. Rejoice, you will live forever if you put your trust in him. That you can take to the bank. Thank you so much for your kind attention. to the truth of our salvation and to the God whom we worship. Do you know why three-fourths of this Bible is the Old Testament? It gives credibility to Jesus Christ, over 300 prophecies. And I tell you what, when you look at that and you examine all these other religious leaders and you realize where are the fingerprints, where is the DNA of their founding, it's nowhere to be found. But Jesus Christ's DNA goes all back to eternity. Isn't that right? In the beginning, Genesis starts out there. And then in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He sent His Son to come to this world to die on an old rugged cross. And not just to die, but to be buried and to rise again. And that is what separates Christianity from all other religions no other religion has a resurrected Savior. And praise God for that. And if you know Him, then you too can have that resurrection unto life. 
And God came to bring life, to light our souls. And uh, there's no other book that's been more scrutinized than the Bible. Would you not agree? When you read all the commentaries, all the things that are written, I'm going to tell you something. This book has been examined and examined and examined. And many an atheists have come to try to examine this to discredit it, only to find it's true. And the evidence is very, very real. Thank you, Dr. Hazen, for that. I, I don't know about you, but I am thrilled that one day I came to know that truth and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, if you don't know him this morning, why not come to know him today? And by the way, one of the greatest evidence of Christianity is what he does in your life when you accept Christ as your Savior. Because that same resurrection, which really turned the world upside down, and these men that believed it and saw it and went out there and proclaimed it, is that same resurrection power is in our lives. And now we become the living testimony of a resurrected Savior because of what he's done in my life. I know what happened to me when I accepted Jesus Christ. I used to hate church. I used to curse like a sailor and all those kinds of things like that. And when Jesus Christ came into my life, he changed my life. And today I know that I know I have been born again. How about you? Father, I pray that you'll help us now in this invitation time. Lord, number one, that the evidence of the scriptures has been uh, around and proclaimed. And yet so many people try to, to discredit it. It has never been discredited. It's never been proven to be false. It's all been true because you are the author of truth. And yet people don't want to accept it. And I don't understand why people don't want to put their faith in you except that they, want, they think that their life is a better life. And oh Lord, to each of us who have accepted you as our Savior, we understand what is the better life. It is eternal life. And that someday we're going to be in heaven with you for all of eternity. And right now, you've given to us heaven in our soul because of that relationship. And so I pray that, Lord, that as the devil tries to discredit, he even tries to work in our lives to try to get us not to be shining lights. For you said that you came to light men's heart, and we are to be the light in this world, not to be put under a bushel, but on top of a hill, and to light and to be a beacon. And, Lord, Eugene needs to be that beacon, and we should not be afraid. And even if we don't know all the technical things and all that, we know what you've done in our heart and our testimony, and the Word of God is powerful. And, Father, help us to understand the power of your Word that's able to divide asunder the soul and the spirit. Lord, help us to go out there and to be lights in this world. So heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and we're going to sing an invitation song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord have thine own way. But just before we do that, I want to ask you, do you have the evidence in your own heart that you have been born again? Do you know that without a shadow of a doubt? You say, Pastor, I know that. And praise the Lord for that. The evidence is there. It is so real. It is so unmistakable. If you know what I'm talking about, you know that evidence. But maybe this morning you say, I don't know if I've ever accepted the Lord or put him in my heart and, and whether I've been changed or not. And this morning will be a good time to get to know him. Get to know him and the power of his resurrection that transforms a sinner into a saint, into being his child. Why don't you come to know him today? And then this morning also, some of us are thinking that, well, science and all these scholars and professors out there, they know, know what they're talking about. Let me tell you something. They don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know what they're talking about. And if you know Jesus Christ, you know what you're talking about. So go out there and proclaim them and defend the faith and stand up as a light. And maybe the Lord has spoke to your heart this morning about being a gospel witness and telling people about Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to read some books. There's some on the back table back there of how to defend your faith in a world that seems to have lost its, its bearings. And so may God help us in this invitation. Lord, you have your way in our lives now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Have thine own way. The words will be up on the screen. We want you to sing it this morning. And as we sing it, as God spoke to your heart, you're not sure you're on the way to heaven. Let him have his way and let him come into your heart. Have thine own way, Lord.
extinguish the light and for whatever reason he wants you to feel like you're a second class citizen in a world that we live in today Christianity's trying to be thrown under the bus because of the trash that's on top today but let me tell you something my friends if you know Jesus Christ as your savior you're on top because you have the answers of real life amen to that amen. Oh, glory don't ever get over it Amen. Thank you, Dr. Hazen. My pleasure. Thank you. Encourage us. Challenge us. Does this world need to see truth? Absolutely. We have a couple folks that are joining the church this morning. Roger Goodwin. Is Roger in here this morning? All right. Well, welcome him on board. I was a member of our church. And then also, I believe we have another one. Is that right? Joe and Corey Monroe. They're joining our church this morning. Amen. Are they in here? Also, they might be in the second services. Well, we want to shake the hands with them and, and greet them and tell them welcome on board when you see them. There are uh, the book table in the back is, is back there. There's also the directory. Make sure your mug is the right mug in there. All right. And uh, we've checked them out with the FBI. And uh, so anyways, check back there. It's very important for us to get a good directory. There's also the leadership conference. I tell you what, you can't take enough into your heart. To, to build yourself to where you to to come to complete satisfaction. We keep growing, we keep developing. There's a leadership conference. There's some wonderful Sunday school classes. You got the list of the Sunday school classes. I told the 8:30 Sunday school class this morning. You could come to Dr. Turner's Sunday school class at 8:30. You could go to Dr. McCoy's class at 10 o'clock, and you could go to Dr. Uh, uh, Nathan's class at 11 o'clock or Edward's class, and you could just not have to listen to me preach. All right. I mean, there is so much going on. I encourage you to be in these wonderful Sunday school classes. Visit with folks and enjoy the classes. Be back tonight. God bless you. If there's other needs you have, please visit with us before you leave.